The Old Testament lesson for this second Sunday in Advent comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. It's on page 491 of the Pew Bible. In this scripture, the prophet gives us a glimpse into the new creation and the perfect peace that is to come. Please stand as you are able for God's holy word from Isaiah 11, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goats, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What happens when you put a wolf and a lamb in the same pen? What about a lion and a calf? And what about a toddler and a cobra? The last one I don't even want to think about. You know how this world is. Death is inevitable. There's a clear limit to how long a person can live, For some it might might approach 100, for others the limit might seem to be about 80 years. Many fall short of that. If we want to have any chance of living and coming close to these old ages, we have to be careful, don't we? You know that. There's danger around every corner. While there's a clear limit to how long we might live, there really isn't a minimum. Any life can be snuffed out at any moment by any number of dangers. And that's why we teach our children to watch out for these dangers. If you see a hole in the ground about the size of a child's fist, don't stick your hand in it. Even if we don't have snakes or many snakes around here, it could still be something dangerous. Buckle your seatbelt. Use your turn signal. Don't text and drive. Don't touch the top of the stove. Don't drink the stuff under the sink. Use the railing when you go down the stairs. Wear a coat when you go outside in the winter. If an alligator is chasing you, run in a zigzag. Don't climb the fence at the zoo. And on and on and on. 
I mean, millions more warnings of ways to just not die. These warnings spare us from a swift and sudden death. And they kind of make it hard to imagine a world where such warnings aren't necessary. A world where cobras don't bite, cars don't crash, bullets don't pierce, and danger awaits around no corner. Such peace is simply unimaginable, because it's just not the way that this world is. This creation is at war with itself. We see it in everything. Animals devour each other. They'll devour us too if we don't protect ourselves. And weather is, well, exponentially more dangerous than any beast. What happens if we don't have shelter from cold and rain and hail and heat? This world, when we observe it, we notice is bent on destroying itself. And in the midst of this dying world, Isaiah foretells a shoot. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, or as the hymn turns it into a prayer, O come, thou rod of Jesse. There's actually some gloomy news in this, that is, in the part about the stump. To us it might not be so obvious, and I suppose it doesn't really bother us, but to Isaiah and to his readers, they probably stumbled a little bit over this thing about the stump. The stump implies that something is going to get cut down. So what is the stump of Jesse? Jesse, if you're not familiar with him from the Old Testament, he was the father of King David, that great king of Israel who came from the tribe of Judah. Jesse was an average man. He's not famous for anything except simply for being the father of David. And so Jesse himself was not a king. He was a farmer. He owned some sheep. And so David, he did not inherit the throne from his father like most kings do. He came from an average family, but was chosen by God as a replacement for King Saul. And so the only thing that Jesse is known for is being the father of David. And through his son David, Jesse became the father of many kings. And so this thing about the stump of Jesse is a reference to David's kingdom being cut down. It's kind of curious then, I I wondered this, why Isaiah doesn't just call it the stump of David. One commentator that I read had a clever insight into this. By calling it the stump of Jesse, Isaiah shows that every semblance of David's glory would be lost. The Davidic line would return to looking like an ordinary family again. I suppose it would be one thing to have someone left in David's line whom people can point to and recognize as the heir to the throne, even if he doesn't possess it. And that's what it was like when the last king, King Zedekiah, had his eyes gouged out and was taken away to Babylon. That was in the year 586 B.C. That would have been the stump of David, because you could still point to the ruins of David's kingdom. But Isaiah calls it the stump of of Jesse, because even the ruins of David's kingdom would pass away, and the family would return to looking just like an ordinary, average family. Instead of being the stump of a big and glorious tree, it's just the stump of an average 
tree now. The glory is completely gone, and the family returns to what it was at the time of Jesse, before there was any throne of David. The kingdom is completely forgotten. That's the stump of Jesse. Now, it's certainly encouraging that a shoot shall come forth from this stump, but Isaiah prophesied before the kingdom of David was cut down. And that's why this would have been kind of gloomy at the time. Isaiah, he prophesied around 700 B.C. He had a fairly long ministry, ranging more so from 740 to 680 B.C., and it spanned the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These were all in the southern kingdom of Judah. And these were, of course, kings in the line of David. Three out of four of these kings were righteous kings too. And all things considered, if you know a little bit about Israel's history, getting three out of four kings to be righteous is actually pretty good. So it was during this relatively decent time in Judah's history that Isaiah prophesied about this shoot coming from the stump. And the shoot, of course, is encouraging, but a few people must have thought, wait a minute, what was that about a stump? Before the shoot can come forth from the stump of Jesse, the kingdom of David must be cut down and shrink into insignificance. And that's what happened. In 586 B.C., about 100 or 150 years after Isaiah wrote this, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple, and took the last king into exile as a prisoner. That was King Zedekiah. And even though the Jews were allowed to return 70 years later and rebuild their city and the temple, there was never again a king to sit on the throne. There were a few puppet kings during Israel's history, like King Herod, who was appointed by Rome, But there was never a sovereign king, and there was never a descendant in the line of David on the throne again. So by the time of Jesus' birth, the royal family had been completely insignificant for hundreds of years. And so when the eternal Son of God, the promised Messiah, snuck into the world in infant flesh, it looked about as significant as a tiny shoot coming from a long-forgotten stump. And this meek appearance was not limited merely to his infancy. When he grew up, he didn't resemble King David. And even as his fame spread, he was even more reluctant than David had been to take the throne. When he finally did come into his kingdom, it was through suffering and shame. The shoot from the stump of Jesse grew into a cross. Jesus was born to an average working-class family, and he died the death of a criminal. This hardly met the expectations of David's glorious kingdom. But this shoot from the stump of Jesse was far more than meets the eye. The kingdom he entered into through his cross far exceeds the kingdom of David, or any earthly kingdom for that matter. He exceeds every earthly king, both in terms of his virtue and in the peace that his kingdom brings. Now most of this passage has to do with his return in judgment on the last day, and the kingdom that we will uh, see revealed on that day. We saw the humility of the shoot in his first coming, but the glory of his judgment and the perfect peace 
That's what we're waiting to be revealed on the last day. That is when all will see how Jesus far exceeds every other ruler. The Spirit of the Lord rests on him. He possesses the fullness of God's deity and wisdom and knowledge and power. In the fullness of God, he rules as no mere man can. He judges not by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear. You compare that to every earthly king or judge. Every earthly court will make imperfect judgments simply because they are limited by what they can see and hear. And so even the best judges err because they don't know what they don't know. But Jesus is the perfect judge who sees beyond outward appearances. He knows what you think no one can know. He knows the secrets that exist only within the hearts of man. Now this, of course, is good, though it might make us a little bit uncomfortable. He also exceeds every earthly ruler in terms of his virtue. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And this is the real mark of a just ruler, one who gives justice to the poor and the meek. In the kingdoms of the world, it's those who can raise enough money or wield enough political power who can get justice for their cause. But a truly just and powerful ruler is the one who can ignore and even spurn these powerful forces and give justice to those who really have nothing to offer in return. This is the kind of justice we will see on the last day when Christ returns. And on that day, the division will kind of be along the lines of the strong and the weak, except it will be the opposite of how it usually goes. Those who trust in their own wealth or power or righteousness will be condemned. Jesus will see beyond outward appearances of strength. But those who trust in Christ's wealth and power and righteousness will be saved. The poor and the meek recognize themselves that way. They recognize themselves as weak and in need. And they know they are in need of Christ's saving. And so Jesus sees beyond the outward appearance of poverty and weakness, and he saves. Now, in light of this coming justice, we have to ask ourselves, how should we live? And this is where we heed the words of John the Baptist, who said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we await Christ's coming in glory, those words from John the Baptist long ago continue to ring true. If another kingdom is soon to be revealed, we ought to recognize the vanity, the fleetingness of this world. We should be living in anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth. Repent. And that is, turn from your love of sin and self to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's actually a logic to this. I mean, when you compare the fleeting nature of this world to the eternal kingdom to be revealed, the math is against this temporary world. And so it's quite logical to live in wholehearted expectation of the world to come. It's logical, but you all know that we still struggle with it because we've never actually seen it. 
we humans are really bad at seeing the big picture when the big picture is only revealed in words. We forget the promise because the reality of this world is always in front of us. And so we don't see the reality of the life to come. And that's why we have to constantly be reminded of this future hope. And so repeat these words to yourself over and over again for the rest of your life. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Write those in permanent marker on the wrinkles of your brain. A hundred years, or even eighty, really isn't that long. It seems long now. Twenty minutes seems long now. But even a hundred years is a relatively short time. So remind yourself that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how should we live in light of this truth? Instead of seeking after our own glory and power and wealth, we should seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness. This means, more than anything, a life of faith. Remember that your redemption is drawing near. Know that each day could be your last. And so live in faith, trusting that you are God's dear child. He has redeemed you by the blood of his Son. He's prepared a place for you in his new creation by his death and resurrection, and he is returning to take you there. This world is not our home, and so we need not love the things of this world. Do not trust in what cannot save. Rather, use these things that God has entrusted to you to serve your neighbor. That's what they're for. Living in light of the coming kingdom means that we place our hope in the life to come and we use the resources and time that we have on this earth to serve and love in the way that we have been loved. In this way, we live in anticipation of the justice and peace that are about to be revealed. And so imagine what this new creation will be like. Isaiah gives us these unbelievable descriptions. Meditate on these. Paint this picture in your mind. A wolf and a lamb, a leopard and a goat, a lion and a calf, a bear and an ox. Imagine those animals together, and none of them are in danger. When the wolf And the leopard and the lion and the bear get hungry. They put their head down and munch on some grass. It's probably some pretty tasty grass, too. This is heaven's version of a flock. And then, the next part of the scene, imagine their shepherd coming along. It turns out it's a little child. (laughs) Imagine this strange flock of animals following a little child around wherever he leads them. Sounds like a children's fantasy, right? This is the reality of the new creation. That's the real peace we are waiting for. And imagine a toddler playing in the yard. She notices a little hole in the ground and investigates, and mom sees and thinks to herself, oh, what's she doing? Oh, that's the cobra hole. That's nice. Maybe the cobra will come out and play with her. That would be fun. (laughs) That's insanity in this world. It's reality in the world to come. It's a world that's not trying to destroy itself anymore. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a return to Eden, only better. 
Once again, there will be perfect fellowship between God and his creation. That's what peace is. It's not merely the absence of violence. It is that, but it's so much more. It is perfect fellowship with God. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed you by his blood, will return for you. He will transform you into his perfect image, and you will know him, not merely by faith, but by sight and touch and personal communion. He will bring you into the new creation that he has prepared for his believing saints. This kingdom of peace is at hand. Amen. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.